Maya languages and welcome to Geography 101. Geography 101 is all about the places that I visited from Europe, Caribbean, North America, South America, Asia, and Africa. And today, I have my special guest. He is the author of several books, no other than Mr. Dylan West. Hey, Daniel. How you doing? I'm fabulous like you, Mr. Dylan, and thank you for your time. Oh, well, thank you for having me. It's been a few weeks since we last came on the podcast together. Yes, and can you please introduce yourself? Sure. I am Dylan West. Like Daniel said, I'm the author of a few books. I mainly write young adult sci-fi and fantasy that are Christian-based, Scribes' Descent and Emulsipation are the, the first two out the door, but I will have book two of the Scribe series next month. That, that'll be called Scribes Aflame, so be looking for that. Oh, great. Can we talk about your upcoming book? Okay, we can do that before we get into the geography stuff. Some exciting news with latest newsletter I sent out just a few days ago is that I did a cover reveal for book two. So oh, I wow. will provide that for you after this, Daniel, so that you can pass that along to our listeners. Definitely. So how did you craft the Scribes the Flame book two? So it takes place where book one leaves off. Um, and I don't want to get into too many specifics just because it would probably end up being a spoiler. <laughs> um, yes. But the the cover art looks pretty similar to book one's cover, except that it's red instead of black. And there are a few very noticeable graphic elements that, that have been added to the cover. And uh, it'll be things that will make the reader say, hmm, how, how does this figure in? And they'll have some fun looking for those those images as they read. Oh, interesting. So what behind the title of Scribes uh, Descent Flame? Oh, Scribes of Flame, book two. Um, so like the, the title suggests, the scribes are gonna be going down to some volcanic areas. Oh, okay. I probably shouldn't say too much more than that, just to <laughs> avoid spoilers. But... Spoiler alert, people. But for sure, this is one of a kind of follow-up for your uh, Scribe's Descent. And if you haven't read book one, Scribe's Descent, there is a free sample on my website. So dylanwestauthor.com. If you go there, the first four chapters are there for free. So you can go in and see if you like the writing style and see if the story grabs you. Yes, definitely. So Mr. Dylan, how would you describe your writing? Um, well, a lot of other people say that they really enjoy the big world building. And I did spend 12 years working on that. So <laughs> I, yeah, I, I worked that long on the whole series, but particularly on Scribe's Descent, polishing it and getting it ready. Um, 
And I, instead of hiring an editor, I, I got hundreds of fellow authors to do critique swaps with. And a lot of people say that they like how clean my prose is. I work really hard to make every sentence easy to read and very clear. So that, those are the two things I would probably say for my writing. Big world building, and I, I focus really heavy on the readability. What is the process in making those clear sentences? Okay, well, um, after I just hammer out the first draft, I go back and I start looking for things like making sure that there's no ambiguity. And what I mean is that each sentence has exactly one way the reader could interpret it. If I see that any sentence could be taken in two or more different ways, I start playing with the wording to make it so that there's only one possible interpretation. So I know that's a little hard to understand for me just saying it like that. I'd probably have to give you an example. And I don't have, <laughs> I don't have any examples <laughs> right off the top of my head. But um, I also look at things like how long is the sentence? And if a sentence is long, should I shorten it by breaking it up into multiple sentences? Or do I just craft it so that even though it's long, it's still easy to read? Um, I'm, I'm of the persuasion that the longer a sentence is, the easier it is to confuse the reader. And you have to work harder to make a long sentence clear, generally. Um, And I look at things like the, the subject of the sentence, whoever's doing the action, and the main verb of the sentence, what that actor is actually doing, how much stuff, how many words are packed between those two parts of the sentence. Generally speaking, you want the actor and the action to be as close as possible. Because if you dogpile like a 15-word-long parenthetical you know, between those two things, by the time you get past that parenthetical clause, the reader, they read the main verb and they're like, wait, who actually did this verbing? And they have to go back and look at the beginning of the sentence and say, oh, it was that guy, right? So I look really hard at the sentence structure and ask myself, is my reader going to have to go backward to remember something at the beginning of the sentence? If the answer is yes, that's not acceptable for me. I'll rewrite and rewrite and reword until that's no longer necessary. So that talent comes naturally or you need to learn it? Well, it wasn't that natural at the beginning of my writing career, but over time, it has become natural. Not always on the first draft, but definitely on the second and third draft when I go back. Um, I look for that and I'm able to find it mostly because I've spent many, many years critiquing other authors and seeing those kinds of problems and having to help them fix them. And when I go back to my own work, it's easier to see in my own writing. Mm, interesting, Mr. Dylan. So before we go on to our Geography 101, can you please invite our listeners to buy your book? Absolutely. And, you know, in all fairness, 
what I want to do first is to invite them to just go to the website and try the sample. So, um, you know, that way it's, it's low pressure, right? I'm not really asking people to, to buy. I'm really asking people to try the sample. And if they like the sample, then buy the book, right? Um, yes. So if, if they go to dylanwestauthor.com, um, and Dylan is spelled D-Y-L-A-N. So if you go to dylanwestauthor.com, you will see a free sample of both my published books. That would be Scribe's Descent, and that would be Emulsipation. So the first few chapters of each, right there on my website, read it if you like it, then there is a link at the top and bottom of both pages that will take you directly to Amazon where you can order it in a number of different formats, Kindle, paperback, hardcover. Actually, Emulsipation, there is no hardcover for that one. That one's just Kindle and soft uh, paperback. But um, yeah, so, so give those samples a try. See if you like the writing style. See if the, the story, um, you know, clicks for you. And um, I actually have some other s uh, stories, some samples of other books I've written on my website, but I just haven't published those yet. But feel free to check those out, too. Yes, people love support Till and West because the books are phenomenal. So before <laughs> well, we, thanks. Yes. So before we go, Mr. Dylan, I want to shout out to the people listening. My top six countries listening to me according to Apple chart. In Canada, I got 55.4. In Finland, I got 194. Ireland at 82. I, Israel at 61.6. And Ooh. Netherlands, 119.3. And last but not the least, Poland at 161. Thank you so much for supporting this podcast because this podcast is created to empower the world itself, the geography, the planet that we are living right now. So, Mr. Dylan, what will be our next stop? for our journey, for your journey, sorry. Okay, well, um, well, I would like to think of it as our journey as we talk about it, <laughs> that yes. people can kind of <laughs> live vicariously through it uh, in, some, in some fashion. So last time we were on this podcast, we were talking about the world tour that I did on the USS Carl Vincent as a sailor. Okay, we went through, we talked about all the ports and the bodies of water that I sailed through and all that, right? Um, the only port that I didn't really talk in any detail about was Lisbon, Portugal, but there wasn't a whole lot to say about that port anyways, except that, you know, I, I spoke a little bit of Portuguese there. And when, when I ran out of things to say in Portuguese, then I fell back on Spanish. <laughs> you know? Obrigado, obrigado. You know, cause, cause most of the people there, uh, they could understand Spanish, even if they maybe not, you know, weren't able to speak it. So um, that was my little hack for that port. But, you know, we talked about that that tour. And if anybody's interested, please go back and watch that pod or listen to that podcast. And you can get all those details. But for this one, I wanted to talk about a missions trip that I did while I was in the Navy. This was while I was stationed on the USS Carl Vinson as a nuclear operator. But it was before we did that around the world tour. At the time, we were stationed in Bremerton, Washington, and we had been making trips back and forth between San Diego and Bremerton doing our exercises in the Pacific. But when I was on leave 
and I can't remember exactly what year it was, but I think it was like 2004. Either 2003 or 2004. One of those years. Um, I became friends with a gentleman at my church who ran a missions agency. And he told me about a missionary couple that was about to fly over to Morocco and begin gearing up for their next missions trip. And he invited me to go along with them for, uh, I think it was about a week. So that I, I went. And to get there, I flew out to, I think it was two or three different ports in Spain first as a layover. I remember Malaga, Spain and Madrid, Spain. Um, and I didn't really go out into Spain. I just kind of stayed at the airport at that point. But then I flew across the Strait of Gibraltar and over to Melilla, Spain. That's spelled M-E-L-I-L-L-A. So Melilla, that is a Spanish-owned city that is found inside of Morocco. So it is an exclave, right? When a city owned by a different country is totally surrounded by another country, we call that an exclave. And over, we don't have really any of those in the United States that I know of, but this is a somewhat common thing over in Asia and in Europe. Uh, this one happens to be in Africa. Um, so there is a city called Malia that it's technically part of Spain, but it's surrounded by um, Morocco. So that means that to drive out of the city, you have to go through customs and you have to bring your, your passport. So it is yes. just like crossing any other country border. And I remember doing that and going out into what we called Morocco proper. And so the big difference is, is you know, it's because Malia was owned by Spain, Christianity was good, right? You could have Bibles, yes. you know, you could pray, you could go to church, and nobody bothered you about any of that. But as yes. soon as you crossed the border to go <laughs> into Morocco, it wasn't the same, right? It's an Islamic nation. Yes. So now I seem to remember it, at least back then, it wasn't like super fundamentalist, like say Saudi Arabia or Iraq would be, right? It seems like the farther away you get from that area of the Middle East, they get a little about things. At least this was my impression. I don't know. If <laughs> you know, because yes. it was like 20 years ago <laughs> since I've been yeah. there, right? That's a long time for things to change. But um, so when we went out there, it wasn't like I was worried that, you know, somebody was going to hurt me or you know anything like that. Um, that said, this was a couple years after 9-11. Right. Mm. Um, so looking back at it now, I'm a little bit surprised the Navy, <laughs> the Navy let me go. <laughs> so they, they did, um, because I guess we didn't really have any problems with Morocco. And to my knowledge, we still don't. Um, but uh, yeah, we I remembered going with the missionary across the border into the rest of Morocco, where instead of speaking Spanish, suddenly everybody spoke Arabic. And at mm -hmm. the time, I did not know very much Arabic other than assalamu alaikum, which is, <laughs> you know, peace be upon you, or their way of saying hello, right? Yes. Um, and I knew shokran. Shokran is thank you. Thank you. Um, so that was about the extent 
of what I knew <laughs> at that time. Since then, I've studied a lot more. Um, in fact, last week at my daughter's speech and debate tournament, I was a, I, I saw some a Christian family from Egypt there, and I got to practice some of my Egyptian Arabic with them. Um, yes, I don't know like an extensive amount, but I, I had some basic conversation with them. But anyways, the um the dialect the, the dialect of Arabic spoken in uh, the Maghreb that's the Arabic word for Morocco. Um, their dialect of Arabic is pretty different from the one you would find over by Saudi Arabia in Iraq. There's actually uh, a lot of different dialects, and um, they're most common daily conversational words, those are the words that tend to be <laughs> um, it's like when you start getting into academic stuff, like legal, science, you know, that kind of those kinds of words that they all kind of start using modern standard Arabic or what they call MSA. Right. Um, yes. So um, even if I did know some basic Arabic at the time, I certainly didn't know any moroccan dialect and i actually still don't because you know <laughs> i most i've mostly focused on egyptian arabic modern standard and levantine which is like uh around syria and lebanon but uh so back to the geography we went out of malia into morocco proper and the reason was not really the moroccans themselves it was the reef berber people of the northeast corner of Morocco. I don't know if you're aware of this, but there's a lot of indigenous people that live in that area, and they're called the Reef Berbers. Um, some of them, well, actually, according to the article I read just recently, quite a few of them are bilingual in their native language and in Arabic. But there's a good number of them that only know their native language, and that the predominant language of that area is called Tamasikt, and that is probably a language you've never heard of. I know I had not <laughs> heard of it until I went there, um, and there's not a whole, it's not one of those languages you're going to find a Rosetta Stone lesson for, you know? It's not <laughs> like Portuguese and Japanese and Spanish and all those, right? Because only, gosh, I haven't looked it up, but it's probably a pretty small number of people that speak it. Um, you know, compared to the, the big languages. And um, it's got, this is one of those languages where the people living in that area are not, at least back then, 20 years ago, um, they were not super, they were, it was very rural. You didn't see a lot of technology there. Um, and most of the people, I think most, didn't even read their own language. They only spoke and understood it, um, spoken. So the missionary I went with, did, he had Bibles that were translated into Thomasict. And I think I remember we did hand some of them out, but only to the people who actually knew how to speak it. I mean, uh, sorry, how to read it. Mm. Um for the rest of them, we had to give them an audio Bible. So now you're probably wondering, like, how do you give someone an audio Bible? 
right? If they don't yes. have a laptop or they don't have an iPhone <laughs> or any of that stuff, a lot of these people probably don't even have internet access. Um, so like, how would you even give them an audio Bible? And they had like this little handheld device with a little speaker built in. And I don't remember all the details, but there were some buttons on there and you'd press the buttons to start it playing. And it would like read aloud for you the gospel of Matthew, you know, in Thomasict. Oh, wow. You know, or, or some other portion of scripture. I don't remember if they had like the whole new Testament or just certain books, but they had somebody, I guess it was probably a, a Bible translator. It might've been somebody from Wycliffe who, you know, had, had translated the Bible into Thomasict and then read it out loud. And this way you could hand these little devices to even the oldest, most remote reef burger people who probably didn't even have electricity at all. You know, this battery powered device and um, they could listen to the Bible spoken to them in their language. Mm, interesting. Yeah. So, and in um, these people, just to be clear about the setting, the Reef Berber people, it's kind of like, uh, I feel like it's like a step kind of uh, geography. Um, some light hills and open plains, um, big open skies, not like tons of trees and forests, kind of scattered. Um, kind of that that kind of atmosphere. And, um, and I remembered it being different than anywhere else that I, I'd ever been, any of my other ports or, you know, any of the places I, I traveled. And you really did need an SUV to go out onto some of that, that rugged terrain. Yes, because it, it's like too far, far from civilization. <laughs> yeah, and now we did stop by a few cities uh, some major cities where uh, that would not be reef Berbers, that would be Moroccans. And so Arabic was, was very much dominant there. But I remember meeting up, I think it was another missionary family in one of those cities, and they, sp they spoke only French. So uh -oh. there are some French speakers, even uh, within Morocco, uh, not just missionaries, but other people too. So you have a fair sampling of people who speak Spanish, who came from Spain or live in Malia. You have a good number of people who speak French and the vast majority speak Arabic. And if you go out into the, the boonies, so to speak, then you would find people who speak Thomasic or some variant, some like dialect of it. Wow, what a journey indeed, Mr. Dylan. So to sum up, what is your best highlight of your journey? Um, well, I don't know that this was my best highlight, but I will say that I did get to look across the border and see the, uh, into Algeria, because Algeria is situated to the east of Morocco. And so Malia, Spain, that is in the northeast corner. We were only maybe about 100 kilometers from that border. So we drove out and the missionary explained, you know, I, I would take you over there, except we're not allowed. In fact, they didn't let any cars drive across the border. You had to fly over. And then you had to have like a visa to get in. So the best I could do was just kind of look over the border and see um, Algeria. And um, 
he told me it's kind of a dangerous place for foreigners anyways. So <laughs> I was like, oh, okay. And I think I remembered there being like this guard shack and this brick wall with barbed wire on top or something. I don't know. It was 20 years ago, but I remembered it looking a little bit intimidating. <laughs> so if you go back to all the countries that you've been through, which country you're going to choose? Man, it's, you know, I honestly, I don't want to necessarily go back to one of the countries I've already been to. I really want to go to other countries I haven't been to yet. Okay. You'd rather go explore another country. Yeah, it's like probably India, because then I get to practice some of my Hindi in India, not just at like Ikea or airports. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's where I generally get my practice, some of those languages. Namaste. Yeah, namaste. Yep. I got, actually, I got to, um, that's how I sold some books on my trip to California last, not last weekend, but the weekend before. When we were flying out to my daughter's debate tournament, um, we were flying Frontier Airlines, and there was a couple, an Indian couple sitting in front of me, and an Indian couple sitting behind me. They were from different um, Pradeshes or provinces of India. I could just tell by looking at their skin you know, that they probably were, uh, were Indian. And so my opening sentence to them was, Kya aap Hindustani hai? And they were like, <gasps> Dude, you spoke Hindi? And, and they would say, well, actually, I do understand Hindi, but really I speak Malayalam, which was the, uh, make sure I don't get it wrong. I think Malayalam is the regional language for Kerala. And then one of the other ones spoke um, Tamil, which is the regional language for Tamil Nadu. So one couple, the one in front of me, they were from Tamil Nadu. The ones behind me were from Kerala. And those are both on the southern peninsula. You know how India kind of forms like this Dorito shape pointing down into the Indian Ocean? Yes. Bit, right? <laughs> so if you go to the bottom of that peninsula, one is on one side and one is on the other. Um, so, yeah, and I got to talk to them a little bit about their their pro their provinces, their Pradeshes too. And they were like, oh my gosh, you actually know where these places are. <laughs> so they had, uh, one of those couples ended up buying my book, Scribes oh, Descent. Nice. <laughs> what so a the, good the upshot of this is not only does learning a language and learning some geography let you really connect with people in a way that you know, makes them feel loved and makes them feel um seen but you might actually sell some books too <laughs> <laughs> triple purpose <laughs> so let's talk, let's talk about your countries that you want to visit and you said india let's do a four more countries that you want to visit four more okay so let me think about this japan of course and one of the kind of wacky places i would like to see in japan is the island of cats Oh, wow. Did you, have you heard about that? No. What I forget the name. Yeah, I forgot the name of the island. I could Google it. But there is an island that supposedly has like hundreds and hundreds of cats. Oh. They're wild. They just kind of roam around. I, I guess they just forage and find stuff to eat. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> but I think there's like YouTube videos. You can go and, and search for it. I mean, there. I think there's like little mini documentaries that people have made for this place. So... 
Interesting. Yeah. <laughs> and you know, one of the major cities in Japan, I think it was Osaka. I don't think it was Tokyo. I think it was Osaka. Um, that city where I think the Nintendo development team who created Breath of the Zelda Breath of the Wild for you know mm, the Switch yes. and the Wii U, um, yes. they modeled the world map for that game to the same scale. Somebody else, one of your fans who's a big Zelda, you know, Zelda the legend, Zelda fan, they're going to be like, no, it was this other city, but you know, one of those major cities. And so I would like to go visit that city and like print out a map of breath of the wilds overworld and just kind of like be like all right where is this <laughs> like the landmarks in the game to places in the city you know like the shrine of resurrection oh it's like this uh it's subway this terminal or something <laughs> yeah. the center uh, of the train <laughs> uh, yeah so i would like to to see japan you said four countries right Yes. Or four others. So India, others. so five total. India, Japan. Um, I would like to go to Israel. Uh, and, and for the obvious reason, right? I'm a Christian and I would like to see some of these sites. Or at least yes. what the touristy people claim are the sites. Right? I'm sure they yes. would take me to the Garden of Gethsemane where Jesus prayed. Which, you know, I'm sure that would be easy enough to find. But then they, some dude would say like, hey, this spot right here next to this tree was where he prayed blood and and then of course i'd be like wait how <laughs> how do you know it was that exact spot <laughs> you know but you know, it would be fun to to go there um but uh so israel would be another let's see what else um i would like to go to the philippines just because i have a lot of filipino friends but also because there is a very weird geographic feature on the island of Luzon. Yes. I don't know if you've heard of this, but the, the northern island of Luzon, where the capital city of Manila lies, somewhere on that island, there is a lake. And in that lake, there is an island. Yes. And on that island is a lake. <laughs> yes. And in that lake is another island. Isn't that wild? It's got like triple nested islands like an island inside of an island inside of an island exactly one other place on planet earth that people or at least the internet knows about that's like that and that's one of the islands in northern canada and it was discovered if i'm not mistaken by um brian i think his name is brian Je or ken jennings he was one of the prior jeopardy champions one of the the first guy who like kept winning a lot and made several million dollars being a jeopardy contestant um i think i read somewhere that for fun he would go on google earth and just kind of look around in different places for weird geographical features and he found that triple nested island lake island lake thing in northern canada Oh, wow. And it's not even, like, labeled on maps. Because if you tried to, I guess you probably couldn't label every single little island in northern Canada. If you ever, have you ever lo really looked at a map of that? <laughs> it's crazy, right? <laughs> yes. <laughs> so, especially, especially if winter is all covered with snow. <laughs> yeah, so 
um, you know, there, so there's kind of different, different trains of thought when it comes to what countries you want to go to. For some people, it's like, you know, where are the beautiful touristy places, right? Um, with the tropical water, and the, you know, those kinds of things. And there's nothing wrong with that, right? That appeals to a, a big segment of society. But then you got nerds like me and, and science nerds. So, and nerds come in all flavors, right? But so, but the science, the science nerds will be like, hey, there's this lake, Lake Baikal over in, um, I guess it's, Ru yeah, it's uh, Russia um, or Mongolia. Boy, I'm going to have to look at my map now. It's going to drive me crazy. <laughs> um, no, it's in Russia. It's above Mongolia. Lake Baikal, it's, I think, the deepest lake in the world, and it's got species of fish that live nowhere else right so like science nerds like me i'd be attracted to places like that that have these physical phenomenon that are really weird that you can't find anywhere else um like the garapogazco lagoon that forms a little dot beside the caspian sea so if you look at a map of asia above iran there's this the, the, the Caspian Sea almost looks like a backwards question mark with no dot under it, uh, except that the dot is kind of to the right-hand side of the question mark. It's kind of weird. Um, and that dot, that it looks like a lake that's beside the Caspian Sea, but that little dot is, if I'm not mistaken, is either dry or uh, like all year long or dry some of the year. And it's like this bit, this vast, I mean, like, I think it's several hundred kilometers wide, dry lake. You could just walk across. It's really weird. Um, so that's another, like, kind of a specialty area I'd like to see uh, in person. But, uh, yeah, so, you know, you have people who want to go to touristy places, people who want to see, you know, interesting scientific things. You have the people who want to go to historical landmarks, right? I'm not as much of a history buff as I am like a science guy. Um, but uh, countries, I'm, I'm kind of getting, I'm wandering from your question. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Japan, Israel, Philippines. Um, you said Canada. In, well, I mean, I could see that triple nested lake island thing either in Canada or in the Philippines, right? Yes. Um, <laughs> oh. Well, there's a place I would like to go, but I'm a little bit chicken to do it. Do you want to hear about that place? Oh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> Where um, is that? I would probably want to go to the Amazon, some place in the Amazon, just to, to see it in person, especially because I write about rainforests in some of my books. Yes. Uh, so to actually be there in person would give me a lot of sensory detail that I could make my writing even more immersive because, you know, I'd actually been in a jungle, right? Yes. Um, but, but that scares the stuffing out of me because all the things that can kill you that are hiding in that jungle, I mean, gosh. Anaconda. Many of, <laughs> you know, many of which are microscopic, you know? <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> I can suit myself up in a little bubble and go in there, you know, with surrounded by bodyguards with automatic weapons, you know, I don't know, maybe that I would 
be kind of brave enough to do it. <laughs> <laughs> so Brazil will be your number five? Um, probably so, but like with a huge asterisk of, you know, I would have to hear the audible voice of God from a burning bush. Thou shalt go. <laughs> and I'd be like, okay, safety is in a place. I mean, safety is in a person, not a place. That was one of the main morals of scribes descent. So I'd be telling myself that I'd be quoting my own book to myself. <laughs> so being curious it really helped you in writing your uh, yeah. scribe scribe theories yeah yeah oh right. yeah definitely you know when you're so when you're designing a universe from scratch at least i found it helpful mostly to focus on planets one planet at a time where the bulk of the story will take place so when you're designing a planet from scratch it is extremely helpful to know how our own planet works uh, down to a pretty intimate degree so that you can write that planet convincingly that you design, right? So you kind of know um, if you design a continent that has almost no um, little jagged edges to it, it's all really flat and smooth, you kind of know what the ramifications of that kind of design are then you get a continent like africa where it doesn't have very many safe harbors and so shipping is going to be uh underpowered there versus if you get a continent like europe right if you for our listeners if you pop open a map of the world and you look at these coastlines you'll see what i'm talking about if you look at Africa, it's pretty smooth, the outline of the continent. You don't have too many parts that divot in like the teeth of a key, right? But when you look at Europe, all the jagged edges, all the inlets and gulfs and, you know, all of that going on, their channels and all that stuff, it, it, there's so much more coastline. It's, it's all very complicated and that really helps with safer navigation and safer harbors for your shipping and so you know knowing these things uh, really helps to make your world building real and the only way you can get to that level of detail is just being super curious you know i, I watch a lot of youtube videos about geography like uh, and usually they go like this you know the um, here's why the geography of Iraq is really poor. And I'm like, <laughs> oh, really? I would think it would be good because, you know, it's bordering the Persian Gulf. But it turns out very little of Iraq actually borders the Persian Gulf. Really more of Kuwait, Iran, and Saudi Arabia border it. And Iraq only gets this tiny little sliver. And that tiny little sliver is really inaccessible to the country because... I think it's like marshlands or something. I'd have to go back and read it. So um, there, uh, it's, it turns out that it, just because a country has like some coastline doesn't mean that it's necessarily usable coastline. Um, like with Africa, there are rivers that go from the center of the continent over to the ocean, but many of them have to go down very deep cataracts or waterfalls. And um, that's a problem 
for your shipping, your uh, container ships. They cannot sail up or down a steep waterfall. Yes. So mm. that's that really hurts Africa economically, like in ways that most people just have not been taught in schools. Yes, so, definitely. So, you know, the curiosity really drives me to consider all these design factors so that when I'm designing a planet, if I want a continent to be poor, I know how to shape it and make its geography so that they are destined to be poor. And I know how to shape a continent to make it more likely to be rich and powerful. Very well said, Mr. Dylan. So before we go, and I'm inviting you to listen to my new podcast, Comedy 101 with Mr. Mike Lucas. And our first episode is today. I will publish 9 p.m. Pacific time. Please do listen. Comedy 101 because Comedy 101 is to empower comedian all over the world. We learn how to laugh, people, because laughter is the best medicine. Right, Ooh. Mr. Dylan? <laughs> oh, it is powerful medicine indeed. And can you please invite our listeners to buy all your books again? Absolutely. So if you go to the website, dylanwestauthor.com, you will find a free sample of Scribes Descent and Emulsipation. And uh, just to clarify, Emulsipation is a novella that is the TV show that characters in the Scribe series quote from. So because Scribes takes place in a totally different universe they don't know what marvel is or star wars or disney you know they don't know any of those things they, they don't have <laughs> our our culture i have to write their culture for them right so one of their cult classic tv shows is emulsipation and uh, that's where if you're wondering about the word where moles help rescue or emancipate human slaves um, which sounds rather odd, but when you read it, you'll see why. It, and it, it'll make uh, pretty good sense. At least I think. I think it makes sense. But uh, yeah, so Scribes Descent and Emulsipation, check them out, try the sample. And then uh, the other thing is if you leave a review for Scribes Descent, I will put your name into the video game Scribes Descent. That's right. I didn't just write it as a book. I made it as a video game which you can play on my website. So if you go to dylanwestauthor.com on a laptop or a desktop computer, you can play it with keyboard and mouse or a USB controller. So you'll see the names of people who've left reviews for my book. You'll see those names already in the video game. So I would like to see your name be the next one in the game. Yes, people, let's support and play the game of Mr. Dylan West. Absolutely. And sign up for the newsletter on my website. That's important. That way you get all the geekiest science research tidbits that go into the making of the books. Mr. Dylan, what is your advice for those people out there want to explore the world? Oh, yeah. Geography. <laughs> um, well, get rich. <laughs> or, or, <laughs> or if you don't want to get rich, join the Navy. That's, yes. that's what I did, right? And I uh, went around the world, went to different ports. Actually, so like in the, in the United States Navy, you've got the surface fleet and you got the sub-submariner fleet, right? So you're going to a surface ship, like a carrier, you know, or a, a cruise ship or one of those, um, a destroyer, 
or you're going to a submarine. Um, I'm told, uh, I've never really you know, been on deployment on a sub, but I'm told that surface ships tend to hit more ports than submarines do. Um, so if you're really interested in hitting lots of ports, you probably want to get stationed on something like an aircraft carrier. Um, and then you're getting paid to go, right? Yes. Getting paid to go out to sea and to, to go to these ports. The only thing is the vast majority of your deployment is not frolicking at ports. It's really at sea, right? On a six-month deployment, you might go to somewhere between, I don't know, five and ten points, uh, ten ports if you're lucky, uh, somewhere in that, for that time period, uh, that number. And each port you might stop for like three or four days, right? So out of 180 days, you might spend – uh 20 to 30 days total in ports right um so joining the navy is a good way to do it maybe working for an airline the only thing there is you probably only get very short trips the kind of traveling you want to do I, I hear that like journalists have to do a lot of travel if they're like international correspondents um, yes yeah, so like finding a job, a vocational way to go overseas is probably the the most affordable way to do it. And then you're getting paid, you know, as part of your job. Otherwise, you probably have to get rich. <laughs> or, yes. or you're like a single, a single, like a bachelor and you're backpacking through Europe or something. <laughs> if, you, if you have like a wife and a lot of kids, it would probably be a lot harder yes. for you to pull it off if you're not wealthy, you know. Yes, people, we are encouraging you to travel the world, different countries in our planet. As a human being, we need to explore our own planet. Um, cheaper ways to do it, if you really can't leave your house to do it, you could um, watch a lot of, uh, what do you call it, vlogs, where different YouTubers go out and tour these different countries, and you can watch their adventures in those places especially if it's a particularly dangerous place <laughs> or hard oh. very hard to reach place you know yes. so at least you can watch and you know and experience it that way or cruise or take a cruise through google earth um, like i was talking about earlier how ken jennings found that triple nested island lake thing in northern canada you can go you can download google earth or go to their app or whatever and just explore the world by cruising across this virtual globe and zooming in on points of interest. I spent quite a bit of time doing that. It, it's pretty fun. Yes, people. And thank you for your time, Mr. Dylan. Oh, well, thank you, Daniel. Bodycon people, see you soon. All right. Bye, guys.